You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. My guest is uh, Sandrine Miller-Montgomery. Dr. Montgomery is the uh, Executive Director of the Center for Microbiome Innovation, led by Professor Rob Knight at UC San Diego, and serves as a professor of practice in the Department of Bioengineering. So in that position, she's leading a team uh, focused on expanding the industry and the academic collaborations, and they want to accelerate microbiome diversity and create technology around it. So, uh, Sandrine, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so what um, what got you interested in the microbiome in the first place? Well, uh, it happens that I'm someone who, who likes uh, a lot understanding the big pictures and uh, and understanding big pro- uh, big projects. And uh, I stumbled, in fact, in microbiome uh, across my career. Uh, I'm a scientist by training, uh, moving toward the, the business side uh, in biotech, and uh, uh, as, as I was moving within my career, uh, I was looking mostly at the human uh, genome. That was my uh, my background, human biology, human molecular biology, human genome. So microbes specifically were not in my, uh, in my radar, but I was using techniques that could be used for both uh, human genome and, uh, and microbes to And so the microbes went, went to me in a way. And the first thing that intrigued me about uh, microbiome was that it was the reverse of what has been studied so far uh, in uh, in the microbe field. I mean, the microbe field has been studied uh, for the bad bugs, uh, the the killer, the one that go and destroy food, and uh, and the microbiome is just the opposite of that. Is uh, how to protect all of the good microbes that we were uh, ignoring since then, and, and that's when my love for big picture uh, and uh, and system uh, study uh, exploded toward microbiome because you cannot touch anything in more or less the planet Earth without uh, finding yourself confronted to the microbiome science, which was mm. until very recently not looked at at all. Yeah, bacteria were just looked at as bad. Um, Ex- and everyone you know wanted to get rid of them and have none of them, but they're essential for life. They're everywhere. So. Exactly, exactly. And in fact, when when you think about it, um, you know, humans we like we like to think that we are you know very important on this planet, and to some extent we are. 
But what we tend to forget is that before we arrived, there has been millions of years where we were not there, but what was there was all the microbiome world, uh, the, the bacteria, the fungi, the viruses. And, and during millions of years, they have uh, time to adapt and evolve. And that's uh, an amazing amount of diversity that is coming with all of these millions of years of evolution. And when you look at the tree of life, it makes us feel very, very tiny because we are one tiny branch, uh, despite all of our variety as, uh, as homo sapiens. But we are just one tiny branch of uh, the, the tree of life, while most of it is uh, used by microbiome fungi and uh, uh, I mean, bacteria, fungi, and, uh, and, uh, and viruses. So that was to me very humbling in a way that uh, we were not focusing enough on, on all of this diversity. Again, we were looking at the bad guys, but uh, not the, the, the major population of the good guys. Yeah. So how, you know, it's weird. Bacteria can attack us. They can live with us. They can even, you know, depend on us and make things for us like serotonin in the gut, et cetera. Mm-hmm. How do you think there's that decision process, you know, by the body and maybe it's done in collaboration with our existing microbiome, you know, how does our body, including the microbiome, how does it consider an outside bacteria or virus uh, beneficial or a threat? Or do you think there's like a vetting process that not only involves our cells, but our microbiome against outside creatures? Well, in fact, I would like to reverse the table. I mean, is that we couldn't live the life we have without them inside us. In fact, when you um, when you realize that uh, you have kids, for example, that have to be raised in uh, in septic uh, in aseptic zone or bubbles uh, due to immunodeficiency, um, they if you uh, their, their development is affected, and one of the reasons because they are lacking this interaction with the protein you are, uh, with bacteria. You were mentioning you know production of serotonin. There is a lot a lot of production uh, that goes into um, a component that goes into our blood that couldn't be there if we didn't have bacteria in our gut, for example. Uh, we couldn't have um, a healthy skin if we didn't have all of these healthy bacteria on our uh, on our skin, for example, to to combat the aggression of the environment. So they are essential to our health. And from birth, when you are born, virtually the baby is somewhat sterile, even that's not completely true, but the baby is somewhat sterile, and as soon as it's getting exposed to the, the, to the environment, these, uh, uh, these bacteria start seeding, and, and the, the baby, through the contact with the nurse and the parents, through the contact with the, uh, the mother milk, for example, and later on with the regular food, all of these exchange uh, are stimulating the seeding of uh, a human by the environmental uh, bacteria. And if you remember, the immune system is unexistent or very immature in the first three months of the life of a baby. So it's the perfect fertile ground for uh, bacteria because they can enter the system and, and not be attacked. In return, it stimulates the immune system to start understanding what's foreign and what's not and train the immune system for the you know, the kids when it grows up to be more protected. And in fact, we arrived to a situation where if you were to keep your, your kids, healthy kids, uh, too protected from the environment by not letting them play in the dirt, for example, they, they will likely develop some uh, lower immune response 
uh, to their normal environment that can at some point trigger adverse events such as asthma or allergic reaction in the future when their bodies stop being exposed to uh, allergen that they were not uh, trained to be able to handle in their early life. So it's important to understand that we get seeded and the body has been done so that there is this period where we are nearly welcoming, our body is welcoming all of these bacteria because we are unprotected uh, by our own immune system. And in return, these start producing beneficial elements that uh, enable the kids to, uh, to start developing. Yeah, but I thought that babies are not born sterile, that if it's a vaginal delivery, that the baby is bathed in the mother's microbiome as it comes out. Absolutely. Just before birth, they are somewhat sterile. And again, it's not absolute, but they are somewhat sterile just before birth. And now when they when they go through the vaginal uh, canal and get in contact with, with the mom during the, the birth process, that's when they get seeded the first time. And this is something that um, we need to always keep in mind. For example, with babies that are uh, born by C-section, uh, where the skin of the mom has been uh, uh, aseptized to ensure that there is no uh, later uh, infection, these babies have a very, very delayed um, development of their microbiome. And it, it, we can see that in the very uh, early days of their life, in the first seven days, we, we have seen uh, data showing that their microbiome is delayed and do not mature uh, the way that a normal vaginally delivered baby's uh, microbiome will develop. So you're right, they are not fully born uh, sterile if they are vaginally delivered, which is the way nature does the first seeding. But some babies have that delayed by uh, being born by C-section. What's um, with the microbiome, um, you know, it's not just in the gut. Um, do we see evidence that there's microbiome around every organ and every part of the body, or do you believe it's only... Uh, centered in certain populations and certain spots in the body? Well, the more we look, the more we find them. So I remember when I was a, a young scientist, I got trained that uh, urine, for example, is sterile. Urine is not sterile. We just couldn't grow the bacteria and we couldn't observe them, but they were there. And uh, and now we can detect them with no, no question. Uh, the same applied to the blood. Uh, that's uh, a means that has been debunked recently where the blood is sterile unless you are septic, meaning you have a bacteria that's taking over because you have a disease. And again, this is not true. We are detecting a bacterial signal in the blood, even in uh, an healthy uh, patient uh, and subject. And the same happened for the tissues. Uh, and there is a lot of discovery that needs to, uh, to come up. But uh, more and more, we find that tissues have their own bacteria embedded inside the, the, the tissues, uh, the interstitial tissues. So more, the more we yeah. go, the more we realize that well, we are not a sterile entity. And, and it's very, usually it's for a very good reason. And there is this uh, symbiotic relationship uh, between the bacteria and the tissue or the organ. Well, again, so in, a, in an adult, what do you think is the disease mechanism? You know, if I'm an adult and I get exposed to a, a certain virus, you know, the flu virus, and I get sick, mm -hmm. what's happening? You know, is it just the old picture sounds like it would, oh, the virus would go into your body and, you know, attack the cells. and blah, blah, blah. But we have this microbiome that we're so closely linked with, you know, essentially we're a superorganism. I would think that the microbiome we have is actively participating in the defense of us because it threatens their existence too. Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, one of the key examples we can use is uh, with the bacteria uh, Clostridium difficile, 
which is uh, what has been called, you know, the, the bacterial disease of hospital, where people, for the longest time, we didn't know why they were going in the hospital, they were getting treatment for their disease, and suddenly they were having this massive case of diarrhea that in some cases was was uh, lethal to, to, to the patient. And so it turns out that uh, people thought that Clostridium difficile, that was a culprit, was in fact something that was growing in uh, in hospitals, uh, a bacteria that was uh, in fact in hospital. And it turns out that this is not the case. It's likely because when people go to the hospital, they get treated. A lot of them are going to get antibiotic. These antibiotics, the, most of our antibiotics are still very broad spectrum, non-specific. So they are going to kill the major uh, population, the majority of your uh, bacteria leaving the place available uh, for some other bacteria that could have been completely innocent uh, in small amount, but then we can find a new niche because the, the most of the bacteria are now uh, displaced and they can uh, invade the, the, the space. And that's what CD does. If most of the bacteria are, are uh, gone because of uh, an antibiotic treatment, when CD finds itself alone, it starts invading the place, leading to this uh, uh, you know, t- detrimental uh, episode of di- uh, diarrhea, which again, as I mentioned, can, can lead to, to death. So it's a very serious disease. Uh, for the longest time, people thought that uh, CD was not present in healthy subjects, but in fact, it is not in very high abundance and not in everyone, but you can be completely healthy and have CD. Uh, but again, you remove most of your bacterial uh, complex by uh, taking antibiotic and then suddenly CD is going to take over. So it, it's a case so, where our microbiome is virtually protecting us from an invader. Yeah, that's what I mean. How does it... Um... I mean, when we're born, we have, you know, a weak immune system. So the bacteria probably take up residence first. I would think they must. Yeah. I wonder if they guide the creation of the immune system and how they interact with it. Um, Absolutely. Then when so you're an adult can... and you have your yeah. you know, your immune system, yeah. now the, you have these bacteria, these strains that have been with you for 10, 20, 30 years, let's say, 40 years. How do they treat or vet new, newcomers? So technically, yes and no. So yes, you have some of these bacteria that are going to be there since you're born, but a lot of them are not, in fact, going to be there. You're, when you're very young, until you are about three years old, you have a very immature microbiome with a very uh, low diversity of the bacteria uh, that you find in it. And based on the environment in which you grew up, a city or uh, uh, the countryside, based on your diet, you can be raised as a vegan or as an omnivore, Uh, based on the contact, you know, do you have a lot of uh, uh, friends at school with who you interact and and play sport with, or are you uh, uh, homeschooled, for example, with more limited social exposure? All of that is going to um, impact the diversity of your microbiome. So the microbiome with which you are born is not going to be the same microbiome as when you are an adult. But along the way, all of these exposures are going to enrich your microbiome and are going to expose uh, your uh, your body to positive stimulation. Again, the microbes are really going to be there to train your immune system and uh, direct this host uh, response in a positive way uh, and, and train it so that when a pathogen, you were mentioning, you know, the flu or, or, or other uh, bacteria that are not welcome producing toxin arrive, then the body has already recognized something that is self versus something that's not self and can uh, really activate the defense mechanism. 
So, but again, how do you imagine that uh, newcomers are vetted? You know, if I change my diet, I know mm-hmm. this, I've observed it, you know, my microbiome composition of my gut changes. Yeah. What do you think are some of the mechanisms by which that happens? For instance, when you change your diet or as you age? Yeah. When you, when you change your diet, obviously you're depriving uh, your, your existing uh, microbiome population from their favorite food. Uh, and, uh, and so that's in, if you starve your microbiome, well, some bacteria are going to leave your body, because, I mean, not die and be eliminated in your stool. Uh, and, and then these original uh, bacteria are going to disappear, but you're still eating or else you would be dying. And what you are bringing with your food is likely, uh, new bacteria, new bacteria that are on the, on the food coming either from the animal, from the plant, whatever you, the new uh, diet introduction you have. And with these new bacteria and the new nutrient that you are bringing, a new generation and a new family of bacteria are going to, um, to come and, and, uh, and receive the balance. So more or less when you change your diet, to summarize, you're creating a void of some bacteria and that void, that niche, gets replenished by new bacteria that you get exposed to through your new diet. Uh, Mm-hmm. Most of the time, it's not going to have a, a, a major impact because it's not necessarily what the bacteria, you, the type of bacteria you have that's important in your gut, but it's what they are doing and their production. So you are mentioning, you know, producing serotonin or producing short-chain fatty acid. To some extent, if it doesn't have to be exactly the same bacteria that are present as long as they do the relatively same function. And that is a function, the way the bacteria are producing metabolite uh, or, or proteins, that is going to be critical. So while they can change, as long as the function, what they are producing is relatively similar, the host can, uh, can completely undulate this, this variation. Okay. So, so what's the, um, the focus of your research? What are you, uh, what are you looking at in terms of the microbiome? Well, I like to joke on the fact that if you find the focus of our research, please bring it back because I lost it a long time ago. We we do not focus by, uh, and, and it's done on purpose, because microbiome is part of our environment, of our diet, of our buildings, of ourselves. You know, we were mentioning the gut, the, the skin, the, the tissue, the blood, the, the mouth. We can't really walk in silo. And so uh, that's, uh, that's what we are doing here at the Center for Microbiome Innovation. We have more than 130 PIs who are looking at microbiome from tons of different ways. So it can be tons of different domains, uh, you know, looking at the, at the ocean microbiome, the soil microbiome, the plant microbiome, the food microbiome, obviously the human microbiome. That can be done looking at by different technology. Uh, you know, metagenomics, metabolomics, metatranscriptomics, and that can be done by in silico modeling, in vivo modeling, you know, in, in clinical trial in human. So many different approach. And, and, and so on purpose, we do not create any specific focus. We don't want to create any silo because we understand that it's merely a butterfly effect. If you change microbiome somewhere, something, a chain reaction is going to happen and it will have a repercussion all over the environment in which you are studying. So that's our focus in a way, to not have a focus, but have a very holistic view of the microbiome research. Um, and again, can be done from a computing point of view. It's, microbiome is a big, big data um, uh, field. Or from a molecular biology point of view, from a cellular biology point of view, we do it all at, at the center, which I think make it uh, a very rare place. Uh, and this is 
and the reason why we we are attracting a lot of industry partners is because we have this full panel of research angle uh, that uh, can fit some of their gap uh, they may have in their own uh, R&D portfolio. Okay, so what in particular are you, you know, if you don't have a specific focus, what um, what are you studying about the microbiome right now? You know, you, I mean, you must have multiple experiments running, I would think, right? We do. We have experiments looking at microbiome and aging. We have experiments running about microbiome and schizophrenia, microbiome and depression, microbiome and diet, uh, microbiome and ocean. Let's start with some of them. Let's go into a little bit of detail. So, you know, microbiome and aging, what, what kind of interesting things have come up? Well, we're trying to predict your age using your microbiome, which is a fun exercise. Uh, and, and then with that, trying to uh, define if you are exhibiting you as self a sign of early aging of your microbiome that could be associated with a disease, uh, or if you have a microbiome that looks young for your age, which is likely a, a, a sense of resilience. Uh, so that's the kind of, uh, of aspect we are looking at that as a potential biomarker for pursuing wellness as long as possible and eventually we are uh, hoping that if the microbiome starts prematurely uh, aging, maybe this is a sign that an adverse event is going to happen. Like, for example, if you are really looking in the aging population in uh, alpha elderly people, maybe we could detect ultimately that the fall is going to happen because the microbiome is starting to shift in a certain direction. So having a very practical view of uh, of aging so that we could do uh, early prevention, for example. So that's the looking at it from the, the wellness, I would say, uh, point of view. And we can look at it from a disease point of view when a uh, microbiome uh, can be associated with some uh, disease, some neurodegenerative disease, for example, like Alzheimer, and trying to see, again, if we can find an early sign, like a diagnostic tool, in a way, a biomarker of something is going to happen, so let's be preventive. Or if uh, if it's the causality, uh, can we modify the microbiome to avoid the progression of the disease or even cure the disease? Well, how about uh, you know with aging? Um, have there been studies where you've taken like a you know the microbiome of a young mouse and done a fecal transplant to an older mouse, and what happened? Well, uh, that we have not done specifically around aging. We have done that around obesity. Uh, when we were taking, in fact, the, the microbiome of an obese human, uh, giving it to normal mice, and we were noticing that without changing anything, they were starting to get obese, while the twin, uh, the twin humans who was having a, a normal body weight and was not obese, their microbiome was not making uh, the the mice go bigger. So we have this kind of study specifically for uh, for obesity. I, I think it would be likely a stretch, even if nothing is ever impossible, to say that, oh, I'm going to get the fecal matter transplant from a young person, and then suddenly I'm going to get younger. That would be extreme because, again, it's nothing is in silo. Your your microbiome is communicating with your, uh, your body. And if your body is 100 years old, you can put a fecal matter transplant of a 10-year-old in it. Your body and your organs are still going to be 100 years old. Um, so, so that's the thing when there is a lot of uh, buzz and vibe and over promises, and that's one of the things we are trying to avoid at all costs in in our groups and center is to make sure that 
when we define something that there is no hype on the discovery and that we are not fooling ourselves that we have probably resolved a piece of a puzzle, but there are still some things to unravel. So I wouldn't say that you can stay young uh, by just changing your microbiome or doing a fecal matter transplant, for example. I'm not assuming, yeah, that. I'm just wondering what would happen or what has happened if you've experimented with it right yet. Well, then that I don't have the answer. Hmm. So uh, I guess first in terms of aging, what experiments are you doing or planning to do and what kind of things do you want to elucidate in aging? Yeah, so a lot of what we are doing is observational. So we we look at uh, at people, we detail as much as possible uh, coming from uh, them or their you know their uh, caretaker, what are their habits, and they try to get as many data surrounding their environment, their diet, and you know their weight, their height, their obesity level or non-obesity level. And then we map that compared to uh, their microbiome. Uh, some of that goes uh, in the, through the American Gut Project, which is a citizen uh, project where a lot of uh, what we call citizen science uh, scientists send us their sample so they can see how they compare on the map compared to people, for example, of the same age, compared to people with a similar diet or a different diet or a different location in the world. Because even if you call it the American Gut Project, uh, there is, in fact, we're now calling it the Microsita Initiative because samples are not just from America and they are not just from gut. So it's compared to the initial project that was funded in 2012, um, it has broadly expanded to be above and beyond just American gut. So, but with this American gut now part of a Microsita Initiative, this is what we are doing. We are, we are mapping, uh, because we are still in the, in the, in the phase where we need to observe, it's like you know having a GPS. If you if you have the GPS technology but you don't have a roadmap to to superimpose it to, that's not going to be very helpful uh, because you won't know if you can turn or not if there is no map telling you there is a building between your point your point A and your point B. So that's what we are doing. We are right now doing a lot of mapping. Along the way, uh, we find some uh, obvious differences. But the thing is, as I was mentioning earlier, that microbiome is a big data science, and uh, and it's very convoluted to get uh, um, some clear observation. And there is because you're looking at not one bacteria per person, but tens of uh, of hundreds of bacteria per person, um, diverse bacteria, diverse strain, um, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you need to analyze a lot of people to be able to see uh, a pattern. And just to give you an example, if by just looking at your gut microbiome, I'm asking the question, um, are you a vegan or uh, a meat eater? It's going to tell, to take me about, and if I do the study blind, 10 people being in one group and 10 people to be in the other group so that I can say with a significant amount of confidence, which are, which I want you are a vegan or um, or meat eater. Now, if the question is a little bit more complex, uh, such as are you male or female, it's probably going to tell me to take me 100 people in each group to be able to do um, that uh, that uh, call with a very nice uh, level of confidence. And these are easy questions. So now, if the question is, are you 70 years old or 80 years old, or are you exercising versus not exercising, or sleeping versus not sleeping, that may require a lot of more samples sometimes 
to get to that level of uh, of uh, confidence about making a call. And so it's it's coming from the power effect. So the more people we will be able to include in any kind of study, the better we will have a chance and confidence uh, to find the answer to whatever is the, the, the question we are looking at. Okay. And then um, have you figured out any mechanisms on how the microbiome works with the body, for instance, in, uh, in disease and autism or other diseases? You know, what's, uh, what's happening, what's causing the dysbiosis and how's that interacting with our somatic cells? It's it's going to likely depend on the on the disease. Uh, some are a very direct effect. The microbiome will produce, let's say, a, a group of toxins that can be detrimental to uh, to the body. In some other uh, way, they will be uh, normal. Microbiome would be producing a protective uh, set of compounds that may go missing in certain segment of the population. And again, it will depend on, on your diet and your body itself. So it is really you need to analyze all of that as um, a trifecta between or, or, or a set of three uh, poles that you always need to consider. It's your your own human genome and somatic cells, the environment, which is, you know, the, the soil, the ground, uh, the air you breathe, as well as the diet you get and uh, and the microbiome. And all of that interacts with each other. Uh, through uh, metabolism and production of different uh, host microbiome reaction, and some of them will go very smoothly and be productive and protective. Some of them will be detrimental uh, and create some accumulation of agent that may be bad. So there is still a lot of things to um, to analyze. Uh, I was mentioning earlier the short chain fatty acids, for example. Uh, in some segment of the population, it seems to have a clear positive effect and being beneficial. Uh, in some other segment of the population, this seems to be detrimental. It's not really clear uh, if it's a cause or consequences, and so we and that's why we're still in the very early stage of, of the discovery. Okay. So, what are um, some references for people to maybe uh, you know get a test done on themselves to see what their microbiome looks like and maybe get some insight into the various uh, things that are in there and how that may affect their health. Any recommendations there? Uh, well, I, I would recommend first to, to go to a, a company or institution that are reputable, and there is a lot of bad company uh, out there. Uh, fortunately, there is some good one as well, and I will just let you listen to the press on that one, and the, the good and the bad one are very easy to, uh, to recognize uh, based on which agency are after them. Uh, so number one, so do your homework. Make sure that uh, it's not too beautiful to be true that uh, their claim uh, or their uh, the results that they proclaim they can deliver to you are sound uh, science. One of uh, of the project we have, the American Gut Project, is uh, we are a non for profit. We work within UCSD. We really uh, are looking at that as a way to uh, uh, provide science. The data are. Um, anonymized, but they are uh, released in the public domain so that every scientist and every people can compare their data with each other uh, in, a, in a public way. So while your privacy is protected, you have the, the benefits of being able to compare your data to uh, whoever is already in the database. And I think we have more than 15,000 uh, participants already, the number of people are growing. Um, but again, we are doing that as a non-for-profit for science. And that uh, that would be something that I would recommend people to look for, uh, entities that are really doing that for 
more or less science and the greater good and entities that are doing that for self-profit. Well, very good. So what's the best way for people to find out more about uh, the lab you work in and your work? Well, we we have a website, which is uh, cmi.ucsd.edu, because we are a UC San Diego entity. Uh, and uh, if they are interested, we publish an external newsletter uh, uh, at least once or twice a month, and where we, we do summary of all of the uh, good science and good press that uh, we hear about. So if they want to sign up for our newsletter, this is on the first page of uh, our website. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Sandrine, I really appreciate you coming. Thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, but we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Thank you.